you hear me, uh, Gary? <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. It's a pleasure to speak to you tonight. I know we've been speaking um, just a little bit before now, but um, it's obviously evening here in the UK. We've got people from all around the world. Um, tell us um, where you are and what time it is and what you've been up to so far today. Uh, I'm, I'm in California. I live in Los Angeles. Um, it's just gone 11 here. And uh, today, so I've done a, I did a This Morning TV this morning. Um, so I got up for that and a quick few hours sleep and then and then into this um oh, quick checking the children to make sure they're doing their homework stuff that stuff, <laughs> stuff really you know. <laughs> fantastic so you're you're in charge that's good to know well um as uh, we were saying we're speaking to about 45 minutes about your fantastic new book um which is your story in detail from the start of your life to the to the present day it's up to, right up to the present day um, talking about um, how you became a musician, but a lot more besides, and that's um, what I'd like to dig into as well. I know lots of the fans will want to know about music as well. But I wanted to start with a line in the book that really struck me, actually. Um, you write about when you, were, when you were very young, you knew you didn't want your life to be predictable. I, yeah. I thought that was really interesting as a, to show, you know, the way your life has gone and... Um, you know, and but that's something you wanted as well. I thought that was interesting. T tell us about when that feeling first came in your life when you were little. I think it started almost straight away. Um, but it, it really came into focus during school, the latter part of school, when um, you're beginning to have careers talks and, you know, you're, you're old enough to look at the, the lives of the people around you and, and what those lives are like and whether there was any excitement in them or you know the ability to develop that life and take it somewhere else um you know at school it's all about you know, do you want to be an accountant or do you want to be a doctor or that sort of thing and um nothing nothing worked for me where, where, where i used to live um my bedroom window overlooked a main road that went into london and i would be up there every morning an evening after school before and after school and i would just see these rows and rows and rows of traffic and people just stuck and i just thought oh, really you know that's not for me i've got to find something that's better than that you know and so when when we had the careers talk at school one of them anyway you know they said what 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 do you want to do and i, and I said i really can't say exactly what i want to do i can only talk about the the sort of life that it will give me and it has to be unpredictable and it has to be challenging and it has to involve you traveling and excitement and all of those things. And it was like a child's version of what a great life seemed to be. Um, but I was, I was, you know, sincere. I mean, that's what I was, that's what I wanted. You know, be, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> because, um, that's what I've got. You know, um, there are a few things now, children and so on, that, that anchor you in a way that I was never anchored before. But, um, you know, that's not a criticism. That's, that's, that's an amazing development as far as I'm concerned. But I, I got exactly the life that I, I wanted. When I, when I was, um, I think, around about the time I got my first record deal, maybe just before, I was signing on for, the, for unemployment. And um, the, the man there that I went to see for my, my interview, um, he, was, he was great, actually. He said, what, you know, what, what sort of job do you want? And I just said, I want to be a pop star. <laughs> and I thought he'd be angry with me because I didn't mean it flippant. That is what I wanted. 
And he said, oh, I can't help you with that. And um, <laughs> you, you, he said, I'll give you a six months or a year, whatever it was to you know, make that happen yourself. And just, just signed me up and sent me on my way. That was great, actually, because it meant I had no pressure. You know, I was able to just concentrate on what I wanted to do and get the music going. And, um, you know, without his understanding, I would have been constantly sent for job interviews. And, you know, not that I think that's a bad thing. That's what he's there for. But in my situation, it wasn't, it wouldn't have been useful at all. So he was great. So that was lucky. You know, um, I, I've been really lucky in so many ways along the way. I wonder if that guy... Um saw you on you know top of the pops or whistle test a year later and went yeah <laughs> i saw something in him <laughs> you go back to the job center and uh, you know in your limo or something like that <laughs> yeah thanks very much yeah um it, that shows a lot of self-awareness you know and a lot of kind of resilience in you for you know someone you know who's still a teenager you know you were still a teenager when you were first you know well known um you know, you didn't have the easiest time in school, as you write about in the book, but you did have very supportive parents, didn't you? You had um, a home life that gave you a bit of confidence to do what you wanted to do with your life. Yeah, it was great. I mean, my school thing, um, that was a real disappointment to my to my mum and dad. You know, I did. I was really bright at the, the, the junior school. You know, I was I was brilliant at math I could do you know I was just I was a clever kid um and so they saw that academic future as as the, the the safe one for me to go into and so they were very keen that I developed that so when I did the 11 plus and got to grammar school you know they they thought that was amazing and you know they're all really proud of me and um but it just it wasn't for me that wasn't really what I wanted you know I was still looking for this excitement unpredictable kind of kind of life and so when I did eventually blow out school quite quite badly you know I got expelled from the grammar school and I got asked to leave from the next one I can't even remember after that but it was a disaster really um, you know they were obviously disappointed and they did as much as they could to keep you know I was punished for not doing homework and all that you know so it wasn't as if they just let me drift they, they really didn't at all they were really hard on me but but when it didn't work out, they didn't sort of throw it in my face and use it against me. They, they, were, they were amazing and they, they got absolutely behind what, what it was I wanted to do. And, you know, they, needed, they bought me the equipment that I needed. They, they paid for it to go to the studio. And I knew it was a big deal, uh, but I didn't realise how big a deal it was at, at the time. I only found out later. And they'd, they, they put pretty much their entire life savings. Um, in, into buying me that equipment and get getting me those opportunities, and it was really that that got me the record deal. You know, with, without what they'd done, we wouldn't have been able to record. Um, Beggars Banquet, although they wanted me as a as an act, they they couldn't afford to have another act. But I said, you know, we've got our own van, we've got our own little PA system, we've already recorded the songs. All you've got to do is make them, you know, and we're like a free act, you know. And it was that that swung it. If it hadn't have been for that, they wouldn't have signed us. That was all down to my parents. So I, I honestly, you know, I know it's slightly corny to say you owe them everything, but I really do. I really yeah. Do. You know, there's most um, biographies you read of musicians who broke through in you know, the 70s, even through to the 80s, you know, they've, they had to really struggle to get the money together. Parents didn't understand what they wanted to do. You know, why do you think your parents invested in you musically? Were they interested in music as well? 
No, not at all. It was nothing to do with that, nothing to do with in, investing in me. Um, they had no idea whether I was any good or not. <laughs> yeah, and I'm really nervous and, and shy. So I would never sing at home. They didn't even know that I could sing until I went to the studio, you know, went on the stage for the first time. I don't think I do very well, so that wouldn't have given them that much confidence anyway. You know, um, I, I just think they just loved me. It was, that was it. Mm. And they, they want to do whatever they can do to, you know, to see you along that route. And if it doesn't ultimately work out, then at least they, they did everything they could. Um, it's m much as what I'm doing for mine, my children. Mm. I know, you know, obviously I'm, I'm in a much better position than my mum and dad were. So for my mum and dad, it was a huge sacrifice and they, they risked a great deal of their own future by doing it. So it was an enormous thing to do. I'm, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm from chucking money at my kids, but it's not the same thing at all. You know, and I, I'm not sure they appreciate it. <laughs> but to, to have that, um, you know, love at you and then, you know, you, you, you get, you get, end up becoming famous quite quickly. Um, one thing I really love before you, you tell the story about, you know, when you signed to Beggar's Banquets and um, you, know, you have the couple of um, records that don't go anywhere, you're trying to work out what to do and you find the mini Moog and that's the thing that kind of comes to define the Gary Newman sound really. Um, is that, you know, your, the gigs that you went, I love the details about the gigs that you went to in the 70s and your early bands. Um, and, and this is all new to me, like Riot and Heroin and Stiletto. I loved all that, <laughs> all those details. Um, and that you had an audition for the jam. That, that blew my mind reading that in the book. Tell us about that. I've never met Paul Weller, so I don't even know if he, he's aware of it, or if he remembers, you know, this bloke turning up. But I, I'm I'm a hundred percent sure that that's who it was, because I, you know, they become really famous, and I recognise them. Yeah, and so I went. I was trying to join bands, so I, I answered Mad in. I don't know, Mad didn't make a problem. I went up to a band in Woking, and it was like his terrace house, and. Um, and I took, you know, loaded all my gear in. And I, I'm not a very good guitar player, and I, I was even worse then. And, and and so I used to hide my inability by just plugging in lots of pedals and making some really great noises. But it's not particularly musical, you know, it would wail in a way. And it was, I liked it, but it, it doesn't suit what the jam were doing. And they asked me to play, and I, I plugged in all my stuff and started playing. And then they said, could you, you know, can you play without all the, all the stuff plugged in? Caught. <laughs> that was about <laughs> um, oh so i did my best but it no it's shit really so i didn't get <laughs> i didn't get the job but then it wasn't it wasn't that long later actually i can't remember how how far after that it was but then i i was watching top of the pops and, and there they were paul weller mm -hmm. bruce foxton was the other one what well, the drummer wasn't there actually but it was those two and I thought, that's, that's that band that I found the audition for. And then I read more about them and they lived in Woking and it all, it all made yeah. sense. So yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that I failed an audition for the jam. <laughs> Could have been a very different life. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I love the bit when, um, the bit of the book where you're kind of, you know, you're obviously working really, really hard. As you said, you're going to auditions, you're, you know, swatting up about how to be in the record industry. You know, you're determined to, make this work in one way or another. But the thing that defines, you know, the, your new musical direction is a series of, you know, accidents in some ways, you know, happy accidents. And obviously, but with your talent behind them, you have the going into the studio incident where you find the mini Moog, mm -hmm. the mini Moog, and um, 
and you play play that and there's a sound that completely takes you over but um the details about um you know the two songs that kind of really defined that period you know obviously um our friends electric and not not that long after that really cars you know coming from things that just come to you almost straight away you know um i always find that fascinating when you in, you speak when i speak to musicians who've just um you know, picked like with cars, you picked up a bass guitar and you just started playing a riff, and it's the riff to cars. <laughs> which, um, you know, and um, what, what do you think about that in terms of creativity? Do you think, um, is that you know, finding riffs like this, moments like this, are happy accidents or it's something else? I think it's a happy accident, yeah, I really do. I mean, I, I, I do know of other people, and I've read some things where people say, Oh, yeah, it was just it's a natural genius. It, not me, I don't mean this is what, how they see their own creativity. Oh, it's just a natural genius. It just comes to me. And, I think, and you don't think there's any luck involved in that at all. You, you know, of course there is. You know, when I, when I picked up that bass guitar to play Cars, there was no intention. There was no tune in my head. There was nothing there at all other than I sat it on my lap and I went doo-doo-doo-doo. First thing, first four notes I played was those four. And then the next four notes I played was the other bit. <laughs> You know, that was no intention, you know, that was no inspiration for that. That was just absolute lucky, you know, and the only, the only talent was me going, oh, that sounds good. You know, I'll, I'll do that again. It's just, it's not anything, you know, you, you, I'll do it. Too. I'm a, I'll be in the street again later today. Um, you go in there and most of the time when you go in there, you have absolutely no idea at all as to what you're going to do. So you sit down and then you wait to see what happens you know and if you're lucky then you'll stumble across something that works quite quickly and if you're not then you don't and that's where the the stress of it comes in you know you, mm. you because I, I, again i can't speak for anyone else but for me I, I don't walk into a studio expecting to do something great or expecting to do something you know memorable or whatever i go in there terrified that I'm not going to come up with something and that's my the overpowering feeling whenever I start a session day by day is fear that you're not going to come up with something you know and what happens you know what happens if you now go through six months or a year and you and you can't think of anything that you're happy with that works and the longer the career goes on the more successful it it becomes getting it gets worse because now you you you've got something to lose again. You know when this, I, I don't obviously I I love the fact that things are better now. I really do, um, but it brings a whole load of pressure with it. You know, which is fair enough. You know, you know if you're going to be up there, then you you deserve the pressure and you've got to deal with it. Um, but when I wasn't doing so well, it 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 was easier in a way, because you, you've got nothing to lose. You know, you're like done for anyway. You know, your records aren't selling, nobody really cares anymore. You can, you know, you want them to be good. You you want them to be as, as good as they can be, but you haven't really got anything to lose by it. You know, I was releasing albums um, and they would have a life of about two weeks. After two weeks, everybody that was interested had bought it. The press didn't talk about it and it just went away. And, and it was like that for, 10, 12 years or more. So they, they almost became disposable. And so they were, it was, although you're worried about the career and you're worried about money and things like that, in terms of a work pressure, it, it was quite minimal actually. Since things have 
you know, as things have slightly gone better and better over the last sort of 20 years or so. Um, so as each one has done better, so the pressure that comes with that has got worse. And so now mm. I go to the studio and I'm properly nervous, really, really nervous. And, and so it's not, it's not exciting in a way that people might expect. You know, you, you go in there and then you've got all this technology and, you, and it's, you're making all these great sounds and how, how amazing is that? It's not like that. <laughs> you're going in mm -hmm. and you're just frightened all the time. So if, if you have a good day, uh, Gemma knows, you know, my wife Gemma, she can tell immediately from the moment I walk in whether it's been a good day or a bad day. And they're mostly bad, to be truthful. You, you know, you have a really good day once, once a week, once a fortnight, a really good day. You think you've really done something worthwhile. And the rest of them, you're just struggling to try to get there. And I come in and I'm not happy and I don't want to talk. You know, how'd it go? I don't really want to talk about it. You know, is Gogglebox on? Let's just watch Gogglebox. I just want to... Something that takes my mind off it, you know, because I don't want to think about it because it's it's stressful. I think that's you know that truthfulness kind of comes through the book though it really does you know that um, you don't it's you never at any point come across as you're complaining about the, your life and the way your life is now, but um, yeah the that uh, and Gemma you talk about Gemma your wife kind of uh, you know telling you off when you've only got to number two and you know you've. Yeah, and you know this kind of thing but um you know, that pressure must be exacerbated a bit because you know you what you went from having a couple of singles that you know didn't do that well to suddenly becoming you know the big new pop star the big new thing in yeah. um 79 you know um i'm sure some people who are here tonight will have been watching the top of the pops reruns that have been running on the bbc for the last 10 years or so um I remember watching the 1978 and 79 editions and when our friends electric has its debut on that you know and you i'm watching these years later but you know watching them in the mix of all the other acts from the time your performance and that song stands out so much you know it's like a you know bowie doing starman moment or you know for me adam and the ants on top of the pops because i'm a bit younger but kind of um these moments where something just comes on that is very different and obviously you made some decisions when you performed you, you were lit in white and you know you're not smiling and you you've taken on those decisions yourself but um you know, were you aware at that point of how different you would look how much you would stand out from everybody else i wasn't aware of how well it would go but i knew that's what i was trying to do yeah when i'd watched top of the pops my whole life mm. and i'd always noticed that everyone would always look at the camera they'd always look quite happy um, the light, there's always lots of different colour lights flashing up and everyone just looked the same, really. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to try to do something that was different to that. You know, there, there's that thinking that this might be your only major chance. You know, this one moment might be the one that defines the rest of your life. And if you get it wrong, that might be it. You, know, you might not get another chance to do this again. If you get it right, then who knows where you're going to go. So, yeah, put a lot of thought into it. And... And I realized how important it was. You know, it was a life changing opportunity. You just got to turn it into a life changing actual moment, you know, and do what needs to be done. And so what what do you do? You know, so for me, it was the way we looked, the way we moved, the way we worked with the camera. You know, I, I, I thought that if you look into the camera all the time, it, it weakens you slightly. Whereas if you look into a camera at a certain moment, especially if it relates to a particular lyric, you can drive that message right into 
people, you know, it would, it would seem as if you were directly talking to each individual person watching on their television, mm -hmm. if you just did it right. And all this is total guesswork, of course, because I've never done it. All I am is a, is a fan that spent years watching other people mm -hmm. and sort of trying to work out what worked for me as a fan and what didn't. And remembering all that and in turning that in, into your own decisions when, when you get your one moment. Um, and it, it, it did work. I mean, it, it went well. Um, yeah, I, I wanted, I was making a bit of a thing about the, it being electronic. I think the first time we did Top of the Pops, we still had guitar, a guitar player. I can't remember now. I think after that or soon after that, I, I dropped the guitar for a bit and it was all keyboards mm -hmm. to try to emphasize the, 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 the difference between what I was doing and what other people were doing. Um, so that, you know, it, it sort of was adapted along the way. Um, the whole makeup thing, I mean, all of it. And I was dressing like a character from the film, the film from the uh, from the stories that the album came yeah. from. Yeah. It started as short stories, so it was yeah. it was all connected, you know. Yeah. And I I've just seen the questions start popping up for later. I'm just going to drop this in. Paul Bain says, um, "Our friends electric on top of the pops was our playground moment. Everyone in school the next day was talking about it." Um, <laughs> Tell me about how electronics changed your music and changed your life, actually. You know, do you know who left that mini Moog in the studio as well? I've always wanted to know that. No, I never did find out. In fact, I read, I read an article uh, many, many, many years later um, uh, about from Mike Kemp, who owned the studio and ran it. And he said in the article that it actually belonged to the studio, um, right. which I, I never thought was. I, I thought it was a rental that had been left there and was, was waiting to be collected. Um, but I, you know, yeah, if that's what he says, and that's what it was, it, it must mm. be blocked the studio. Um, but it, it, the, the thing about the synthesizer for me, and not just synthesizer, but all sorts of you know sampling, all these different ways that you can incorporate technology. Um, it gave you, it gave me the opportunity to to create noise sounds, um, and then layer them together rather than learning an instrument and learning chords and that kind of structure, which I had no idea about whatsoever, and didn't have much enthusiasm to even want to learn, to be truthful, because that wasn't my interest. My interest has never been musicality. I, I never bothered about wanting to be a great player of anything. I like noise. I like sounds. And for me, the fun part was finding noises that weren't really music at all, and then finding a way of making them musical. How do you incorporate all these weird noises and sounds together? How do you make that into music? Um, that that was the fun of it for me, and and that's that's never gone away. I mean, I still do much the same thing. I still scour through my equipment and other places and and try to find noises. Um, you know, some weird growly thing. You go, oh, that sounds amazing. How can that possibly be in a song? You know, it sounds like a dragon having a burp, or you know, but how can I, you know. It's got to be a it's got to be a gap for that somewhere. So you know, let's do that. So it's it's always been about arranging noises in such mm -hmm. a way that at the end of all that it becomes it becomes musical, and and that was my fun. Mm -hmm. That became my fun in music with, with songwriting, uh, and it wasn't until the synthesizer came along that I was really able to indulge in that. You know, up until then I'd been a guitar player, and although I tried to do it in a way. Uh, I hadn't, re I hadn't really, you know, the synthesizer coming along and all the spin-off technology from that made all of that possible. And so it changed everything, the whole way you go about structuring music, 
putting music together, writing music. It was all different after that. Mm. And for me, it was it was made for me. Mm. It's coming at this point, you know, 1979, where synthesizers still are still quite rare. They're just things you find in studios or they're really expensive. Um, um, but it's starting that period where they're getting cheaper or they're getting more available or you can find them in the studio and people who yeah haven't been classically trained or know which way up, you know, up to hold a you know bass guitar or whatever knows what to do with it you know I know you could hold a bass guitar up the right way obviously because <laughs> you wrote the riff to cars on one <laughs> but um what did electronics um do for you from you know then on did you kind of um do you remember really getting into other electronic music at the time you know this was obviously there were other bands in the UK who were doing some electronic music and you know you write in your book about uh and I've you know read you saying this in interviews before about how you seem to come along to some people out of nowhere and have this you know massive hit. Um, but um, you know, did you spend time kind of listening to you know older electronic music or stuff that was around you at the time, or did you try and just stay in your own field? Well, when I when I made my first album, the first electronic one, the Tube Army album, I didn't know that there were other people. Mm. That was part of my reason for having such a big argument with Beggar's Banquet about the record. You know, I knew about Kraftwerk, I knew about Eno and people like that, but that was it really. Um, so when I discovered the synthesizer, I honestly thought I'd stumbled across something completely new that nobody else had. Um, so when I went to Beggar's Banquet with, with that album, and they was expecting a punk, a punk guitar album, so it wasn't what they wanted at all. So it was really quite awkward. You know, they didn't want to release it. It wasn't what they were, it wasn't what they signed me for. And yet in my head, I'd stumbled across something completely new. And I was the only one that knew about it, which was rubbish, but that's what I thought at the time. And so my argument with them was, you know, this is coming, whatever this music is, I, you know, I, there's going to be other people doing it very, very soon. And, and we have a chance here to get right in at the front end of it. Um, and, and eventually, you know, they agreed to that. And so the album came out. And so then I started to look around. And it was then that I discovered how wrong I'd been and how many other people were already doing it. You know, Ultravox had made three albums, I think, when my first one came out. And it was Orchestral Maneuvers and Fag Gadget and Human League and all a whole mass of other people have been doing it for some time and doing it really well. You know, so I think to them, I think it was Andy McCluskey from R&D said once that I was seen as a bit of a Johnny come lately that mm. came in and, and stole everybody's thunder. Um, and I can understand that. I, mean, it, I, I think that's true. I really did. Uh, you know, I came out of nowhere and I stumbled across this thing. And luckily for me, you know, the record company went with it. And so it was, you know, I think, I think it was out within a couple of months after I recorded it. And so I, I, I really did, I just fell on my feet and, and, and I was so prolific. I, I wrote, I had another album written within a few weeks, which is the next one, Replicas, I had Offerings Electric on it. That came out a few months after the first one. Mm. And I had another one, I had three albums out in less than 12 months. So I was turning stuff out, you know, and I was so passionate about it and so enthusiastic for it. And everything was so exciting. I just got my record deal. I got my first album out and everything seemed amazing. And all I wanted to do was just write songs and I had this new instrument and I was so fascinated by that. And it was such an exciting time that, you know, what else are you gonna do? I don't drink, you know, I'm not gonna go to the pub every night 
with my mates. So all, I, all I'm doing is sitting at home, writing songs, trying mm. to learn, learn as much as possible. And so it just went away. So it, you know, it, it took off. But I do understand why those people were slightly annoyed with me for, for coming out of nowhere and, and, and doing what I did. On the other hand, what happened to me suddenly made what they were doing um, desirable. To where yeah. before they'd been working on their albums and doing their songs and the doors were pretty much firmly closed in their faces because nobody was interested in that sort of music. After me, everyone's interested in it now. So they're all getting signed at left, right and centre. So, you know, I, I think I helped them out ultimately, even though I might have taken that first bit of glory from them. Oh, definitely. And, you know, people when people think of electronic records from the time that may have been made by people who are rock stars, you know, thinking of the Bowie Berlin records, they weren't massively successful at the time, you know. Mm -hmm. he, yeah. and, uh, but, you know, your, your records in 79 were. Um, there's a great quote from Neil Tennant in um, Dylan Jones's recent book about um, the new romantics called Sweet Dreams. That um, I don't know if you've seen it, but um, I wanted to, to read it to you. He said... Um, the whole renaissance of British pop starts with Gary Newman and our friends electric. He took David Bowie and reduced it to a black shirt and a pair of black jeans. I love that. But there's this idea that um, this, what you were this kind of, you know, Bowie-like figure, you were this guy who looked unlike any other guys, you know, lit in white, not smiling, and delivering these, you know, short stories that were influenced by, you know, Ballard and, um, Philip K. Dick and all these people you were really interested in and you know 70s to the 80s you know that time people were really fascinated in sci-fi and the future more and more because technology was becoming more available wasn't it you know that, that's something you've always been interested in. I think I think you're know, writing a song called Arquins Electric that was the you know the big sort of banner song if you like of electronic music was just lucky you know, mm. it just happened to have that electric in the title. Man, it wasn't part of any clever strategy by me to connect everything together. And you know, the whole um, the whole image thing was actually when I first started playing in bands, I was really nervous. Uh, you know, if I had to do a little gig in a little local pub or something, I was properly terrified, and I I couldn't hold a conversation. Sometimes for like a day or two ahead, I was absolutely flawed by the nerves of the whole thing and this is to you know 10 people in a pub not you know nothing really um and i had a particularly bad one the white heart in acting was the last gig i ever did as a as a punk in a punk band there's a big fight and it all got stopped and it's all horrible but that gig i'd been so frightened that my dad had got hold of me and, and took me to one side and said you know if you can't find a way to deal with this then this is a really terrible career choice for you because you're just not you're not made for this at all. Mm -hmm. And so he said, you've got to do you've got to find a way of dealing with it. And so, and so I did. And and what I come up with as a way of dealing with the nerves was personas, images. Mm. You you create an artificial layer between you and the thing that you're scared of, which is people, really. And you you hide behind it and it sounds really stupid because it's just still you standing there doing what doing what you're going to do so how can it have any difference at all but it does and i don't know why i don't understand the psychology of it but it does make a difference i would put on the clothes i would take on this persona i would be this confident almost sneery arrogant kind of person that wasn't scared of anything at all and i would strut around the stage as if i knew exactly what i was doing when I had no idea at all. 
and you are hiding behind that front, that persona. So if anyone shouts anything out, you don't care, you know, because this persona doesn't care. But you do, underneath of that, you would, but you, you have this barrier. And that's the way I, that's why I got into images and personas and so on. So it was actually, strangely enough, nothing to do with David Bowie. Um, although I was a massive fan, I thought he was amazing. But for me, it was a function to overcome fear and to enable me to do it long term. Mm. Um, and, and it was incredibly useful. And without mm. that, I don't think I've had a chance of surviving uh, you know, more than those, that first few months. It would have crushed me completely. Um, mm. And then as, as time goes by and your confidence grows and you've just simply been doing it so much of your life, the need for that disappears. And so personas then become artificial. They become a structure because you think you ought to do them because that's what the fans expect. And so that's, I started to lose my way a bit with that. I started to change images for the sake of changing because I thought I, sh I had to. Um, mm. And then that was all part of the whole thing. Not, not the main part, but that was all part and parcel of the whole thing sliding away. And then you find many, many years later that you don't need any of that anymore. You know, you're as comfortable standing on the stage as you are having dinner with you with your kids you know it's yeah. just normal, so normal you know you're as comfortable there as you are anywhere and so you don't need that anymore and then I went full circle and, and thought well, I don't need them now but I sort of liked them you know I mm. liked having characters and personas and so on so I've actually gone back the other way now <laughs> so I've got images again and I'm, I'm back into all that but the reason for them now is totally different to what it what it was before yeah. it is interesting though I was looking through your your 80s albums and just noticing you know how yeah the personas are, or the kind of just not even personas the images you're using uh you know, you're try trying to change your sounds and experiment obviously as well but um there are lots of different you know things you're doing in the 80s and you know you've had you know this amazing success straight off the bat but you've also had you know the pressures that come off fame you've had you know I you talking of the book about you know the death threats you were having and you know a petrol bomb under your car you know things like um things like that that um you know you wouldn't expect people to have to go through you know any musician to have I, to go through but you I didn't expect it because you know what what have you done you've written mm. a song you've written a song yeah. that loads of people liked you know oh okay <laughs> and that's and people want to kill you because you've mm. written it so it, it can't be that you know it can't be you know, I've never disliked a song enough that I wanted to shoot the person that wrote it. Mm. Yeah, so it can't be that. It's got to be something else. Maybe you become a a symbol of of a life that they would never have and wanted. Maybe it was it's a jealousy or resentment thing. Maybe they assume that the life that you've got, first of all, is undeserved because they don't like mm. anything that you've done. So you've got all this money, and they think that there's you know supermodels hanging off of lamppost just waiting to get hold of you and it's not like that at all it is <laughs> i think people think it is and yeah. and i think so it i think it's a huge amount of of resentment to you personally for for having you know achieved things for, for something that they don't consider worthy perhaps it's a reflection on their own life that they never perhaps never even tried to do anything and now they regret not trying yeah, mm. so it makes our own life seem more of a failure than it, it actually genuinely is, but it seems like it is to them. I don't know. I don't know where all that weirdness comes from, and I'm so, 
I'm so grounded. I'm so not bothered by any of this. I, f I find it even harder to understand because yeah, I don't think I'm anything special. I, I, I only ever talk about how lucky I've been. You know, even the biggest songs that I've written, I'm very dismissive about any talent being attached to that. You know, I'm, I'm very aware of how lucky I was to become successful. And I, you know, I think I've done a few things right during the career and, you know, and I take some credit in resurrecting it somewhat um, over the more recent years. But in terms of songwriting, man, I, I'm all right. You know, but there's loads of people. Isn't it the most disposable talent? You know, everyone can write songs. My kids are writing songs now. Really good too. You know, yeah. I've got mates that can write songs, you know, not even in a band. They yeah. can't, it's not that big a deal, really. And it certainly don't make you special because you can write songs. You know, if I was a really great artist, if I come up with a cure for cancer, you know, or something important, then I would, I would, you know, sort of welcome all the praise that comes with it. But um, it's not like that. It's, it's not, you know. And um, with your music, you are always trying to do new things. And one thing that you know struck me reading reading the book, you know, you set up your own record label. You're quite early on in your career. You know that you do that for a while. You kind of start, you know, getting into the more industrial side of noise and sound and that starts coming through and obviously you know the people you have worked with subsequently and the people you inspired you know you mentioned Trent Reznor already you know um you're starting to explore you know different worlds you know and by the 90s you know you could have seemed to have you know more of a confidence in what you're doing and you know from from, from reading the book it seems to be a period where you're getting more confident in trying new things obviously around the same time you meet Gemma you get into a very happy relationship um but you're 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 less concerned about some of the things that you were concerned about before and more into you know experimenting and trying new things musically I think I, I think as the the first success with the Our Friends Legend cast period as that started to fade away to begin with I was still um very sure of myself and sure of what I was doing and I was trying to do different things musically and I thought that was important it kept me interested I thought it would keep the fans interested, but I'm not so sure about that anymore. Um, but then as it got worse and worse, then I started to doubt myself. And part of that was, was the money that I was earning wasn't just for me, it was for all of us, mum, dad, we all lived off that same money. And so I was very aware that if, if I was now starting to make mistakes and, you know, and we were getting into trouble, then it had an effect on all of us. And I, I felt the pressure of that really really strongly and so it, it was that as much as anything that that was the beginning of me losing confidence in my own ability to make my own decisions musically and so I started to listen to advice you know what what sort of music you should be doing what songs what sort of songs you should be writing that sort of thing and that's the kiss of death absolute kiss of death you know that is the very last thing that you should give up on no matter how bad things get the very last thing you should give up on is that. And, um, but I did. And, and I wonder if, I, if we hadn't have been a family concern, if I would have done that. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, and it's just absolutely not critical of my mum and dad at all, because they never gave me any pressure to, do, to change at all or to start listening to other people for advice. But I was aware of it. I, you know, I could see you know, we were so in trouble money-wise. You know, we were massively in debt massively in debt and um 
it was my dad that was taking the brunt of all the, the pressure of that because it was him that was running around credit card machines every night trying to get money out to keep us going and it was just really really stressful for, for them and I wanted that to go away so I wanted to the career to do better so that I could take that burden off of them and so I started to listen to advice and you know, sure enough you you just lose your way you really you you get obsessed about things that you shouldn't be obsessed about you you start to write things that you're not really that interested in but you know somebody said oh this would probably do well so you do it you know you see you the, the, you know funny thing is people say that you sell out when you become successful that's not true at all you become successful doing something you were passionate about and that you loved you sell out afterwards when you start doing things that you're not really passionate about and not that interested in because it might make you more money or or it might bring you a little bit of your lost fame back again that's selling out and i definitely did that and so meeting Gemma, and so from the 94 album sacrifice mm. that was where i found myself again and that mm. was thanks to Gemma. and it was Gemma that was able to make me see all of the mistakes that i talk about so easily now and so quickly it took her a year or more nearly two years of working on me to make me understand everything i just said in the last two minutes <laughs> and, and that made all the difference in the world and if it hadn't been for that and if it hadn't been for her being able to guide me and I don't mean that she told me what music to make it wasn't that at all she made me believe in my own ideas again and she mm. she gave me that confidence back to do my own thing the way I'd always done before and to stop listening to advice and just go off in my own direction and she did introduce me to some music that I hadn't heard which was very very helpful but nonetheless she she simply gave me the confidence to to become the person that I'd been when I first started once again and it's been uphill ever, ever since. But if I hadn't have met her, or if you hadn't have been so patient and you know, spent all that time trying to convince me, because I was really angry when she started saying these things. You know, I thought she didn't understand at all. Who the fuck was she to be telling me? You know, oh, it was horrible, horrible. I was having none of it. And she was really patient and really lovely. And bit by bit, I began to understand what she was saying. And and listen to it and change because of it. But without her, I, w I wouldn't be here now. I wouldn't be talking to you. I wouldn't have had that upturn of career from 94 onwards. You know, I would have been gone. Absolutely believe it. She's, she came in at the very last minute and saved me without doubt. It's you bringing up, you know, sacrifice. I remember hearing that record around the time and you know, it was, it could have sort of chimed with other stuff that's going on at the time. You know, I was into Nine Inch Nails at the time. I was, um, it, it was a sort of set, still that synth, the heavier side of the synth that, uh, you, you, that I knew from your stuff in the 80s um, and sort of dark wave sort of stuff. Um, and it seemed to suit you, you know, kind of, in, and you, you, you know, it's really interesting that you go into such detail about that period. Um, and also, you know, talking about your, you know, more contentment, you know, you didn't have an easy time over the next 10 to 15 years. You know, you've talked about your you know, anxiety and depression. You've talked about your difficulties having kids in a way that not many men talk about in such detail in the book. I thought that was really amazing, actually. You know, no, it's, but it's, it's good. You know, you're, you're obviously, you know, you're obviously loving, loving being a dad. And you talk about how long it took with the IVF. And there's, there were well, there's a couple of amusing scenes in the mix, which are not 
dark and horrible. <laughs> um, but I'll leave those for the book, maybe. Um, but um, you know, you do. I'm interested in the you know the the, the sort of the work you've done for film as well. That um, you know, your music has always been very filmic to me. You know, from day one and throughout. You know, I've just been listening to playlists of your old stuff the last week. And uh, is that something you? Um, you know, as I guess I'm guessing film music has influenced you through your life as well. And uh, I'd love to hear you do more, actually. Well, one of the reasons I moved to America um, in 2012 was because I wanted to get into film music. And I very much saw that as the next stage of, of my career. I would fade away from albums and touring. I would get more into film music and then that would see me out, you know. Um, and then I, when I came here, I did one fairly strict fairly straight away actually um, after arriving yeah. here and it was good and I did enjoy it but I, I sort of realized that it wasn't really for me and, and I was I made friend, I made friends with Trent and, and other people that were big in film music and I just listened to some of the stories you know the, the things I have, they have to go through and I just thought you know I don't fancy that really uh, uh, and I realized you know that actually I really love touring yeah, you know, I, I couldn't imagine sitting in a studio with a film director shouting at me rather than being out, you know, doing gigs or traveling around the world. So, I thought, you know what, I think I just stay doing what I'm doing. I don't really want to get into film music anymore. So I threw myself back into albums and touring um, much more than I had before. So, the, I mean, the last two album tour cycles, I've, I've done more gigs on those tours than any other I've ever done. So I've, I've just veered completely away from film. But I do love it. And I really did enjoy the process of writing for it. But as a career, um, I don't, I don't think it's for me, really. Um, do you, in terms of the other records you've made, you know, kind of things that stick in my mind, you know, Savage came out, when was that now, three years ago, you know, that was a record that, um, you know, had quite an impact. Um, and, you know, it was, you know, you've always been political in your own way, but that felt like a, you know, deeply political record, obviously. Uh, what, you know, looking back at your career, uh, what are the records you're most proud of? Are there any that you kind of look back at now and think, do you know what, you know, the, maybe ones that will surprise us? Um, no, no, nothing that will surprise you, I don't think. Um, you know, the first three, um, the Tube Armour one, because it, the first, very first one, because of what it meant to me and, and I had the circumstances of finding a synthesizer and then adapting it, you know, taking these punk songs and making them electronic. Um, that was um, important to me. Obviously, the one after that with Alfred Electric was important. And then Pleasure Principle after that, because that had no guitars in it. So I'm making a bit of a statement with that one. Um, mm. And then, um, uh, and yeah, nothing really, really leaps out to me from then up until Sacrifice. Sacrifice was a real pivotal one for me. And that, that was a, the album that saved my career, I think. And then, um, I mean, I like everything after Sacrifice. I mean, I, I, I like them all. But I think we with Splinter, the second from mm. last one. I just mm. think with that one, I just absolutely got it all together again. Everything, you know, the, the look of it, the sound of it, the lyrics and music. I think the work that Aid Fenton did in it was in incredible. And it just, one of those, it, everything just came together, you know. And the, the fear for me after that was now what? You, you know, because it's going to take something to beat that one. And then I did Savage, which gets me to number two again. And, um, which I couldn't believe, you know, that was just, mm. I cried like a baby when I, when I got the result, when I got the I job. love that bit in the book. You're really moved by it, aren't you? Yeah. Oh God, yeah. 
Yeah, I've still got the film. I've still on my phone now. I've got, got this little two minutes of me just blubbing. <laughs> and Gemma not quite figuring out what's wrong with me, you know. <laughs> Absolutely lost it completely. And I, and I had no idea that emotion was there. You know, I didn't feel that was anywhere near to me. Anyway, um, so, that, so then Savage becomes incredibly important. And, and now the worry, of course, now what? <laughs> you got to do that again. So that's this, this unrelenting pressure, you know, to just, the, the better something does, in a way, the harder things become, because now you've got to beat that. And, and I thought I was done with all that. You know, I thought, I've had all my big ups and downs, and it all just found its level. And I thought I, thought I was past that. But, but, but no, we're, we're back in it again, which is a great, it's a great place to be. I'm, you know, I'm not knocking it, but, but there is a price to pay for that, which I'm, I'm living now, because I'm, I'm just trying to finish the, album, the new album now. And it's, yeah, how's it, all, how's it all going? Has lockdown been good for that or not good for that? Or, but, you know, you're in LA, you're in the middle of Trump's America, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> now I'm in California, which is not Trump's America. No, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> it's its own island. <laughs> We're almost a colony. <laughs> um, it's, well, I was, in that sense, making the album, um, or the, sorry, the, the, the lockdown thing didn't really make much difference because I was going to be effectively locked down anyway. I was going to be in the studio for the whole uh, sort of winter, spring, summer period. Um, so, so I just carried on with it really well what did uh, throw a spanner in the works was the book uh, writing the book so i wasn't in, uh, originally going to be writing it so that suddenly took seven or eight weeks of of studio time um away from me I, the whole studio thing was great I, everything was planned i knew how many songs were left i knew what i needed to do there was a deadline it was going to be easy um and then a book suddenly happened um and then when the book was finished, I, I, I had two, two months left to finish the album when I started it. When the book was finished, I had eight days left to finish the album. And I still had two songs to write, one to finish and all the artwork to do. So, yeah, didn't, didn't quite work out. So I've got a new deadline now, so, which, which I'm still, <laughs> I'm about to miss that one too. So that's why I'm in the studio again today. I'm, I'm really, of the last bit of the last song is what I'm doing today. If I can get the vocals and the lyric done today, that's my bit done. I can start on the artwork tomorrow. Fantastic. Well, we've got loads of questions and I'm going to try and get as many of these in as possible. I'm going to start with a kind of gentle one. Um, hi, Jude. Question for Gary from Tony Jameson Allen. Do you still enjoy listening to music or does it feel like work? If you do uh, still listen at leisure, what music do you listen to? I, I, I barely listen to music at all, ever. And I'm quite embarrassed to say that because it, you know, I should do. Uh, and I think as a creative person, it's almost my duty to be listening all the time to hear what's going on and to, you know, to absorb that and to turn that into, into my own music. Mm. But I, I really don't. I don't. Um, the, the kids get angry. I don't want it on in the car. It bothers me, you know. Um, they listen <laughs> the to music. Yeah, they're massively into music. They, yeah. they write their own songs. They're, they're, all it's all they do they're in their rooms it's music it's buying albums and things like that which is great and I, you know I, I love with that but they they do find me frustrating and i don't know whether it's because it seems like work or not it might be that i'm really not sure i, I just i just don't i don't if i've got some spare time the very last thing that i think i was put on an album in fact i can't remember and we're probably talking 20 30 years since I actually sat down and put on an album to listen to, wow. to take the pleasure of listening to an album. Yeah. Now I hear music, 
because yeah. Gemma's playing all the time, and I sometimes go and say, "Oh yeah, what's that? That sounds good." Or something to come up on the telly. Before COVID, I was going to gigs a lot, so I'd get music there. Yeah. So it's not as if I'm completely removed from it. But as far as just sitting down to you know spending an hour just listening to an album, absolutely don't doesn't happen for me. It's interesting. Um, Tony James Allen is also the father of two girls and a veteran of Busted and McFly gigs, <laughs> he says. So um, Busted and McFly obviously not made a massive impact on, on your work. Um, Nick Davidson says, thanks for you. Thank you for all the great music you have produced. I saw an interview with John Lydon who said one of his favourite bands was Status Quo, which was unexpected. What bands might surprise us that you were a fan of? Uh, I used to be a fan of Status Quo, actually. Funny enough. I, I, <laughs> even though some of their albums. Um, I had an argument with Rick Parfit once about Cars, but it's another Oh, story. go on, tell us about that. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'd, seen a, I'd seen a documentary about Porsche. He's got he had a, he's a big Porsche fan, right? And it has just, this, at that time anyway, this massive spoiler on the back. And I'd seen this documentary that said that was actually for fuel economy. It's nothing to do with handling. And so I, I was with him one night and I had, a, I had my car, which is a nice car, and he had that car. And I just pointed that out to him. You know, it's nothing to do with performance, mate. That's just to keep your fuel economy down. And he got so offended. I thought he was going <laughs> to punch me. <laughs> Proper row. Mate, you know, <laughs> not my words. You know, I just saw it on the telly. Livid, he was. So, <laughs> so, so, so yeah. podcast, it's a podcast waiting to happen, this, isn't it? Um, and obviously, you like Nazareth, you, because you mentioned your first gig was Nazareth in the book. That's a great story. Yeah. Um, Nick also adds, would you be tempted to do a version of the Doctor Who theme if approached by the BBC? Uh, well, oh, that's an interesting one. Um, yeah, I guess so. It depends what the what the fee was. Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna pay me for it I'll, I'll do pretty much anything yeah i love that doctor who theme though and i think it's been done so brilliantly already i doubt i could do it any better so cool um we've got a question from uh vampy hooch um i wanted to ask gary about his journey with anxiety and depression what helped him to overcome it uh medication i'm, I'm afraid I, I was on um oh i forgot the name of the drug now begins with an F. They put me on one called Citalopram to begin with, which leveled out my, my mood changes, but it, it leveled them out in a permanently miserable level. And so it just made me permanently miserable. So that clearly wasn't the answer. So they put me onto another one, might be called Venlafaxin, I think it's called. And I'll get confused with my hay fever because it says a similar name. <laughs> I think it's Venlafaxin. And, um, and that, was, that was brilliant. And, and it really made a difference. In it, 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 it stopped me from being bothered about anything, you know. And, and that becomes the, the next problem. You, you are, I, I've spent my whole life moody, you know, and with moods that were out of sync with the reality. You know, something good would happen, I'd be miserable. Something bad would happen, I'd, I'd be, you know, up and couldn't care less. And so completely out of sync with reality. Pretty much since I was born, my, my entire life up until I was got depression, um, well, was was like that, and it wears you out. You know, you can be in the middle of a sentence having a really good time, and you feel it. It's as if a tap in your brain just opened and go, oh, and you just go down. Gemma's having it now, actually. So I think it's a hormonal thing. She's going through exactly the same thing, um, and with her, it is hormonal. But it, it the way she described it is so similar to what was happening to me. It's clearly some chemical 
problem. Anyway, so I started taking antidepressants and, and all of that went away. I was even and it was so seductive. I'd never been even before. And I didn't care about anything, but in a nice way, you know, not a horrible person, just, you know, I lost, I was going to do Coachella, the festival, big opportunity for me. And that Icelandic volcano blew up and we couldn't go. I didn't care. I thought, oh, it's okay. You know, that's just, let's go and get something to eat. Didn't care at all. And, and that's when it started to become a problem. And then Gemma said that she didn't fancy me anymore because I didn't have any ambition and I was just, I got really boring and, and that shook me, that shook me out of it. But the problem was I didn't want to go back to what I'd had before. I didn't want to go back to being moody and up and down and out of sync. It was horrible. And it was only when you weren't like that for a month or two that you realized how horrible it had been before. And I just did not want to go back to that. So I stayed on the pills. In fact, I upped them a little bit and got even more zombie-like um, until it really did become a problem in our relationship. And, and that's what made me cautiously come out of them. And when I did come out of them, I didn't go back to that. My, my moods are in sync now. So whatever that problem was, that period of being on antidepressants fixed it. Much the same as IVF. You know, we couldn't have children. We had what they call an unexplained infertility. Nothing technically wrong, but it just didn't work. And then you have IVF. And it's as if Gemma's body learned. It was taught somehow. This is what you need to do. to Because then we two more quickly after that, naturally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, it was much the same thing with, with the depression. You went through that process and it fixed what was wrong with you before, which is actually nothing to do with it. It's just a completely separate problem, but it, it fixed that. But that, that it was just, you know, I went on tablets for quite a while. And at the end of all that, I wasn't depressed and, and I was fixed and the problems before were fixed. Got another question about um, music from Hal Gibson. I would like to ask Gary where his favourite venue is to play and where he would like to play that he is not. Um, my favourite venue to play historically was almost uh, was always Hammersmith Odeon uh, or Apollo, whatever it's, it's, it's name or the, the Bats, whatever. Um, yeah, it's Apollo now, isn't it? Is it Benton? That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably not anymore. Yeah, we know <laughs> Hammersmith. But that was always the one because I was born in Hammersmith and when I was going in and out of London doing my little gigs as a punk rocker, we would go past that every time because we lived on that route. And, um, and I'd always say to, you know, me and the bass player would always point to it and say, you know, one day. And so it became symbolic um, of success. You know, it, when you, if you became successful, that's where you went. That was your first port of call. And so it became really, really important. And it still is to me. It still is really important. Although... It's been overtaken somewhat now by Wembley Arena, because when I retired um, from from um, playing live briefly, I was at Wembley in this is a eighty one, um, and I think pretty much that's where I shot my career in both feet. That decision was a really good decision, as far as sanity was concerned and, and keeping me together, getting out of playing live just for a bit, but but, but making a big fuss about it terrible mistake should never have done that i think i upset everybody that had ever been supporting me my fans record company promoters everybody i just absolutely just destroyed everything and so the new symbol for me is wembley if i could ever get back to wembley arena then that would feel like I'd, it would have the same importance if not more than hammersmith odeon when i was a kid wanting to get there so, right. so 
Yeah, they're, they're, the, they're the two. As far as places that I've never played, uh, the O2 Arena in London. I did it with Nine Inch Nails, but I'm in my own right. To do it on my own right, that would, that would be the, the, the pinnacle for me now. Mm, yeah. Um, we've got a, quite a few people saying happy birthday to Persia for yesterday, by the way. Mustn't miss that. I've got a few people, we've got, I've got this massive chain of messages, but um, Keith Elric and there have been a few other people talking about the acoustic tracks you recorded. Um, you recorded 13 tracks acoustically with the band released two. Are there any plans to release the rest of them? Well, the problem was um, we, I made them available as downloads and, and they were immediately shared, which just ruined it really so um i think people forget that i earn my living by selling music you know th this is this is what i do for a living you know I, I sell tickets i sell albums i sell things like that and that's where i am my living um and i know it's a lockdown and i know things are slightly different but none nonetheless um and so when they're shared and people get them for free um then it takes away my ability to earn a living, especially at the moment when there are no gigs and so on. It's one of the very few things that I can do to actually earn some money. Um, and it, you know, it's likely that I won't be playing live again for another year. You know, so it'll be two years um, before I, you know, with, with no live income. And live income is almost all of my income, not all, mm. all, all of it, but almost all of it. So it's, you know, it's difficult. And that was a, a small idea to help to, um, it helped the band, it brought some money in for the band because I paid them for the sessions and it would have helped me a little, little bit. And um, so that, that was very, very disappointing. So at the moment, I'm just trying to think what, what to do for the best with those songs because I was really proud of them. It, they, they were really, it was a really good thing to do musically. And, um, and I would love people to see it. And the idea was that I would, I would sort of speak for five or 10 minutes about each song. So I would tell anecdotes about each song, what it's about, you, you know, anything funny that might have happened during the recording, that sort of thing. Every three or four minute bit of music had a five or 10 minute video attached to it or what it was about. So it was a really, really cool thing. So I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I'm, I might turn it into one sort of composite performance and, and do it as a streaming event. Um, might have make it into a DVD. I'm not sure yet what to do about it, but you know, sadly the, the download idea didn't work out, but it's, it's not gone. It will come out. I just got to find the right way to do it. Fantastic. Um, Paula Robinson asks, um, do you still think your studio might be haunted or did you find another explanation for the weird things that were happening a couple of months ago? Uh, <laughs> no, no, I didn't find any explanation for it. And, um, and it's not happened since, luckily, because it, it was a little bit unnerving. It was just really weird. I, I was sitting in my chair. I got one of these little whizzy spin around chairs in the studio so I can slide across the floor from one bit to another. She's got wheels on. Uh, and I was just sitting there with my keyboard and it, and it was exactly the Sometimes Gemma comes in and she grabs a chair from behind me and, and judges it like that. And that happened. And I didn't even turn around. You know, I was just so convinced that it was Gemma. One of the kids was standing behind me waiting because I was actually playing something. And so I finished, finished playing it, turned around. No one there. No one. But my chair jumped. And my feet fell down. My chair jumped. You know, so it probably freaked me out for a bit. <laughs> Where are you going to go? You know, I'm in there every day. You know, I can't be scared of it, so I can't go in there. But I am. I'm really scared of stuff like that. I don't. I don't want anything to do with it. So, um, but I know. So it's not happened since. So I'm. But I still. Every time I'm in there, I'm aware of it, and I'm waiting for something to happen. Okay, I don't know. Nice. I, think I track stuff like that. Something weird happened this morning, actually. <laughs> in the bathroom. That's it. 
totally different thing, but that was weird as well. I just, um, I, I don't know. I, I'm like a magnet for weird shit like that. Happens. <laughs> oh, there's all going to be put into, you know, intruder. You've got to kind of keep on, keep on going with all this stuff. Yeah. Um, Ke Kerry Davis asks, um, and there've been a couple of other film questions. Um, I get you don't enjoy writing scores, understandably, but um, how do you feel about your music being used in films? Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, I get really excited. I, we went to see the Muppet film many years ago now, and one of my songs is in that. Uh, and I hadn't gone because of that. I'd actually, uh, I, 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 I'd, I'd even forgot. Oh, no, I know, I, I can't remember now, but it was really, the kids were much younger. And the kids leapt up, is in a you know in the cinema, and it's really <laughs> embarrassing. They were so excited, they leapt out of the seat. It's like going, Dad, Dad, it's you. Like, you know, just down, you're really quiet. So it was, it's funny. I, I you know, I, I love it. it. It's really exciting. Um, it's, I'm really proud of it. You know, and if it's used well in the right place, I think, I think I've got a song in the new Wonder Woman film actually. Um, it's just, it's just really cool, you know, and it's, you know, I, I remember being at the cinema and a, an advert would come on that's got my music on it. I'll be watching the telly and, and an advert would come on that's got my music on it. It's great. It makes you feel, makes you feel proud, you know, it's, 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 yeah. it's, a, it's, it's just, as, it's just as exciting seeing that as it is, you know, finding that someone's just bought your album or you, you go into the chart or something like that. It's, it's all recognition of what you're doing, yeah. you know, and it, that's, it makes you proud. I love it. Yeah, um, uh, Mike Quinn has just said, I puppeteered on that Muppet film. So there we are, we've got one of your, your fans who uh, had an insight there. Um, there's so <laughs> many questions here, I'm kind of coming up and down. What have we got here? Okay, um, we sort of answered that one a little bit. Um, I love your sloth necklace, where is it from? Says Jill Lincoln. Um, <laughs> yes. yeah. uh, uh, Costa Rica. When I'm, when I'm on holiday to Costa Rica in, oh, I can't remember, November, October, November, November, I think, last year before it all, all went to shit. And um, yeah, I'll, we we go down to the beach. We, had, we we rented a villa just a short way from the beach. And so we go down to the beach and set up all the chairs. There's loads of us. And Wayne, Wayne Hussey from the mission was with us and Robin Fink from Nini. It was a real load of musos together and then all the kids. It was really, it was really good. Anyway. So we, you go down to the beach and you sit under these palm trees at the back to get some shade. And there's sloths up in the tree. Just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, and also outside the villa, there were sloths would come past the villa really, really slowly, obviously. And monkeys. And it was just an amazing place. I, I absolutely loved it. So that, that's my sort of token memory of being in Costa Rica. Rockstar holiday jewellery. I love it. Um, Joe Jackson asks, and I thought of this as well, you know, how do you manage to perform a prayer for the unborn? You know, how do you put yourself in the position to perform it? Uh, I, I have to, I have to detach myself from what it's about. I, I, I which is unfortunate because it, you know, it's a very deeply felt song for me. The most deeply felt of mm. all of them. And you would want to do that with all the passion and the emotion that it, that it, it, it holds but if I do then I just get upset and I can't sing it and and sometimes um so you, you you sort of have to just think of it as words and not remember or associate the meaning of what those words are about so you almost do it like mechanically but that's really hard to do and, and you you know most of the time you fail at some point so what I've tried to do now rather than making it 
making you want to cry about it because you know it's, it's a horrible thing it, uh, i i let it make me angry it becomes a really anti-god anti-religion sort of angry thing and then i can do it um but it's no it's really it's really difficult actually really, really difficult and it's been what I don't know, 18 years, 19 years, I can't remember how long ago it is now since I wrote it. And it's as difficult today as it was the day I wrote it. So it doesn't, doesn't go away, unfortunately. That, that sadness that comes with it and the, the depth of that feeling that doesn't go away mm. at all. Yeah, it is, um, as songs go, you know, there's, there's a few a few of yours that must be difficult to play, but that must be, yeah, I've always thought that one. Um, Few more questions. Um, Laura Scrivener asks, "What's your advice to young people starting in the music industry now, in the middle of this pandemic?" Uh, in the middle of the pandemic, I'd say wait, really, because a lot of the things that you need to do, you you can't. You know, being able to play live is is important. Being able to face to face people and you know, talk about what you want is important. Um, but as, aside from that, I, I think the best bit of advice. And I've always said this, and I think it always sounds like I'm being flippant, and I don't mean it that way. But the best bit of advice is don't listen to advice. Don't <laughs> know what you want. Know what you want. Because it was listening to advice that, that nearly finished me. I was doing all right. You know, I'm not saying it was great, but I knew what I wanted. I knew what I wanted to sing about. I knew the way I wanted to sound and look. I knew all of it. Whether other people agreed with me or not, I had a vision and a focus, and that's the way I was going. And all that went away when I started listening to advice. You know, I was arrogantly confident before about, not about the music, but about my own decision making and where I wanted to go and what I needed to do to get there. And, and it really worked for a while. Um, yeah, listening to advice, like I said before, kiss of death. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jim Rogers asks, um, I've been a fan of your music for many years and he's an um, as an entrepreneur, I'm a fan of your creativity with regards to the opportunities you provide for your fans to interact with you um, and your art. And obviously this goes back to the mid nineties, you know, kind of you were such an early adopter of you know, how the internet could work and all this kind of stuff. Uh, what sort of ideas are you considering in terms of new media or new creative channels at the moment? that may be different to what you've done before. Obviously, you know, getting your fans to follow the process of making a record is, um, you know, part of that. Yeah, I think the, the campaigns that we've had people following the albums, um, the making of the albums, that's 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 been a good thing, I think, too. And there's a lot of people that weren't interested in that. You know, a lot of people that don't want to know how these things are made. They just want to have the that sort of magical moment at the end when they hear everything and, mm. and have their own interpretations of what they're about and how it all came together. So, you know, there were plenty of people that didn't think that was a good idea or, or it wasn't for them. As far as new technology is concerned, um, I, I'm actually a bit of a, bl a blank at the minute. I, I, I'm not aware of many new technologies coming along that I could make use of, but I'm very keen always to, to try to grasp anything new that comes along and to see if it can help me um, to understand how it works and what the, you know, the variations are. Because most new technologies that come along can be used in a variety of ways. Mm. And some people find some very creative and brilliant ways. And some people find some very dark ways, unfortunately, to use technology. So I've always tried to find um, ways of using them in, in a positive way for, for me. Um, but, uh, you, know, the internet, you know, the internet's a good example of that. 
as far as being able to use Scene to interact with with fans, um, that's not really technology. It's just just trying to trying to find ways that you can be closer to people. You know, so we we have the meet and greets, which everyone does now. You know, the, uh, the, you know, the campaigns where people can watch how the albums are being made. Um, we have we have people at rehearsals now. We let we let people come into rehearsals so they can see how the the, the songs are put together and how the sets are structured and how how all that works. You know, just see us making mistakes really because it makes it a bit more human, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I do like that side of it. Um, I, I like to keep my private life very private, so I don't like people coming to the house. You know, I don't like I don't even like fan mail coming to the house. To be truthful, I don't. Um, I'm very, very protective about my family time with them and having somewhere to go where, where you can just get away from all of that. But because of that, I try to make myself as accessible as possible when I am out there you know, doing the, the, the Gary Newman thing, as it, as it were. So trying to find ways of, of doing that, of interacting with people in a way that the fan gets something really worthwhile out of it and really enjoyable um, that helped me to earn a living as well. Um, yeah, that's a constant thing. You know, we um, it's been ruined a little bit at the moment, but part part of the 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 um, the, the campaign, the album campaigns, for example, was you know we had launch parties. So I'd rent this big big boat, and we'd have a load of fans turn up, and we'd go for a cruise, and we'd play the album, and you know things like that. We we had people come into the mastering sessions. We, we were allowed to four people could come into the master and actually see the mastering of the album itself, which is a very mm -hmm. very fun stage. So just trying to involve fans as much as possible um, in the different things that go on in, in a way that adds to their enjoyment of it rather than takes it away. We, you know, as I say, some of the people weren't so keen on the album thing. Um, I do a Patreon thing now, which, which for some reason caused yeah. a great deal of hostility when it came along, which I didn't understand. Because you, know, you don't have to be in it. <laughs> if you don't like it, don't, don't be in it. You, you know, it's, it's, how can that offend anybody? Um, you know, the idea behind that is that people can see a more behind the scenes type of thing of, of, of the, the non-musical stuff. You know, I, like, I voted on Saturday. So I think Gemma took a little film and we put in my letter, you know, my vote in the, in the box. Just little things like that to, to try to give people a, uh, an insight into that side of your life as well. So it's, it's all just about trying to make connections and trying to build a closer relationship with fans because I think it's important yeah. and I think you know it's I talk about I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Gemma but God you know who would be here without fans and the loyalty of them over the years and I've definitely done some stinker albums you know and people stay with you and accept that you the next one would probably be better <laughs> so <laughs> forgiving you know you appreciate that you know, years ago when Radio 1 wouldn't play any of my stuff, not that that ever changed, but years ago when it first started becoming a problem and the fans turn up, you know, and, and have a little demonstration outside Radio 1. Yeah, yeah that, that, that meant a lot to me because it yeah. didn't do any good. But, but, you know, the fact that they were willing to put their own time and effort, you know, to do something like that, you know, to help me out. It meant the world to me. Gemma was at that one, funnily enough. Oh, really? It's fantastic. Yeah, she was at the Radio One demonstration. Wonderful <laughs> <laughs> move. And I, I'm, I'm just, I'm very keen on, on trying to create as many um, um, ways of, of, sort of having relationships with, with them as, as possible. 
Yeah. Um, my last question, um, Anthony James' last question. I just noticed Anthony said at the end, please ask mine. I had yours already, Anthony. You know, you bullied me into this. And everybody's having a little argument. Um, before I ask Anthony's question, um, I want to say everybody's noticed the moomins. There's been lots of comments about moomins behind you, but everybody's loving those. Um, <laughs> they're all fantastic so there's been so many questions tonight and obviously i'm chatting and uh trying to read these as much as possible but um thank you for all of the you who sent them in i'm sorry we couldn't read them all but um the, the last question of anthony, is anthony james's um gary do you actually realize and understand how much you influence people's lives and obviously that's a question from a fan that's you know it, it might you know it it obviously is a feels like a responsibility to you know that you know about fans you know care about you so much um but um you know do you think you realize and understand how important you are to them i i i i, I think i struggle with that actually i really do and it's and it's um and i know that because i i, I am so touched by certain things that i that i hear about you know where a, a song was particularly important to somebody at a stage of their life you know quite often it's sad actually you know, I, I'm, one of the ones that really really st sticks in my mind is a, is a lady who who used to play Arthur Electric in the car because her little kid loved it and he'd be in the middle of the back and they were he was killed they were hit by a truck on the side while he was listening to that song and oh, she wrote to me about that and said that even now she plays it and she looks in the mirror and she still sees him you know that's that's special isn't it you know, yeah so it's, it's things like that you, you know that's when you realize how much how deeply you you can touch people that you've never met you know and it and it's it's very very powerful and um but in the day-to-day -day way i'm not aware of it i, I gotta say you know and when i when I hear things like that, you know, when I hear other artists talking about me as being influential or innovative and all that lovely stuff, which is which is out there, it, it's it's weird because it's as if it's being written about someone that I created, like mm. a character in a book. The way I see myself is is so basic and and so down to earth and so absolutely grounded in in normality and reality that when you hear about this influential legend thing you know, mm. you know I, mean? I, I know it's me they're talking about i know i'm not an idiot you know i, I but it doesn't feel like me you know it, it it feels like a character and um and i want it to stay like that i don't ever want to get big-headed you know one of the things i try to drive into my own children is is this thing about kindness and you know appreciating luck you know appreciating your own good fortune and not you're not thinking that you're special you know don't ever think you're special because i'm your dad for fucking start you know <laughs> none of that i don't want to see any of that i don't want to see any attitude i don't want to see any of that because it makes you ugly as a person um but no, I, but it's lovely to hear. It it, it really is. It, you know, it, it really is lovely to to hear that you 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 mean something to people, and the music that you made has has helped people through difficult times. Or mm. you know, there's a, a whole world of things that come in, but it is lovely. But yeah, I can't I can't escape that feeling that it's it's not quite me somehow. Mm. 
Well, thank you so much for tonight and your honesty and your humility. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Oh, really you. has. Thank you very much. And um, thanks from everybody else. Everyone's saying thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. It's been good Take fun. Take care. Thanks very much for the time. It's been lovely. Bye-bye. Okay, subscriptions help to support what we do so if you like what you hear then please rate us on itunes